I want to start today, this morning, in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. You know, we ended last week in, in verse 7 by saying, basically, the husbands likewise dwell with them in an understanding way, talking about the wife, giving honor to the wife as a weaker vessel, it's being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Some of you husbands out there, are your prayers are hindered because of the way that you treat your wife, of the way that you run your home. Of the way that you actually are when nobody sees, but maybe your wife, and, the, and you try to portray something out in public. What a, what a release when we can live out in public the same way we live in our home. Wow, that's a burden that is, that is so taken away by the Lord. When you live in your home, the same way you live in front of your buddies, the same way you live in front of your boss, the same way you live when you're in church, that's a big one, you live the same way at home. What a burden reliever. You know, that, that's what God wants. You know, we don't have game faces. You know, we're not in sports where, you know, only put on this game face or whatever. We, we don't have that. We're to be open, transparent. Love our wives as ourselves. For nobody ever hated themselves, Paul says in Ephesians. Love them unreservedly. This is where we came off. So look at verse 8. We'll read down a little while, then we'll get back into, into this text and go from there. Finally, all of you, finally, I love that. Can you, you know, I can't imagine the, the, uh, perplexity, if you will, in the drive of the Apostle writing not only the exuberation of our, of our new life in Christ, what the Gospel really means, and carrying that right over to the home, and what it means for husbands to outlive their, the, you know, what the Christian life is, is the outward living of the inward Christ. It's, it's despite, as Schofield would say, it's despite circumstances, it's what's going on within the man. That changes everything. Your prayers will not be hindered. He says in verse 8, he says, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you are called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain, refrain, excuse me, refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. By the way, that's taken from Psalm 34. This life of God goes back into all the scriptures. We have it now working in us as a principle because of Christ. You know? I hate to constantly go back to this. Well, I don't hate it, but I mean, sometimes you guys think it was redundant, but we can see the real inner workings of that, for example, in Romans chapter 7. We are not like the natural man that gets religion. Now, just go out and do the best you can. Try to live up to a standard that none of us know. We all know we can't ever live up to a lot of our conscience. We know we can't live up to a religious standard, and we definitely can't live up to a light of something God can approve. 
So we're in right in chapter 7 of, 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 of Romans where we have this warring going on here. That which I'm doing, I don't want to do. But the good that I want to do, that I can't. I don't, there's no power. I don't know the principle. What's lacking in my life? There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, chapter 1 of verse, or verse 1 of chapter 8 of Romans. It is Christ in us that carries on this resurrected life of Christ through the Holy Spirit that indwells us. So he says again in verse 10, Who would love life? See good days. Let him refrain his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. But I can't without Christ. I've tried. Verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. I can't without Christ. I've tried. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Verse 11, verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of the threats, nor be troubled. Comes from Isaiah. We'll be talking about this verse, verse 15, a very, very misunderstood verse. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be always ready to give a defense to everyone who asks a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct to Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. You know, we talk about the supernatural. We talk about the things that have happened in the Word of God. You know, thinking, wow, that's, that is a supernatural thing. Parting of the sea and, and uh, all those type of things. But you know that the Christian life is supernatural? It is. It is not natural. That's why Paul explains the resurrected body. We'll get into that a little bit. What what does it entail? What does this life entail? Finally, all of you, verse 8, be of one mind. Having compassion for one another. Love his brothers. Be tender-hearted. Be courteous. One mind. In fundamentals, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In everything, love. Let me say that again. In fundamentals, what do we mean by fundamentals? Every one of us is a fundamentals. I'm happy that my tax person is a fundamentalist. Because 2 plus 2 equals 4. And if I have $500 worth of deductions, I want them to apply $500 worth of deductions. I'm glad my, my accountant or, or tax is fundamentalist. 
We are fundamentalists because we believe the Bible when it says Jesus was born of a virgin. We're fundamentalists when we say that Jesus died for the sins of the world. We're fundamentalists when it says that Jesus died and rose bodily from the dead. And we're certainly fundamentalists when Jesus ascended to his Father and is at the right hand. Are we not fundamentalists when we say that when one turns to Christ as Savior, that they are forgiven from their sins and they have eternal life? One mind. Again, in fundamentals, in, in, in the, the, the things that, that are essential to our being born again, we have unity, and we should. In non-essentials, liberty. What is a non-essential? Well, some believe that speaking in tongues are, are prevalent today. Some don't. Some believe that they're in certain circumstances. Some believe that water baptism should be immersion, which I do. But some believe otherwise. Some believe that church government ought to be different. And we should we should have more of a structured uh, thing on, on psalms. Or not psalms, but songs. Some believe in a total different government. The way they should do their church. That's why there's all these different denominations. Some believe they should pass around a, a, a plate for their offerings. I don't. These are non-essentials. And yet, the church is dividing over non-essentials all the time. That grieves the Lord. But in everything, we are to have love. Going off of the last chapter, when we get married, men, we, we vow to marry our wives, to love them, to be their husband and their husband alone, to be their comforter, to be their guide, to be their protector, to be their man, forsaking all others. These are fundamentals that we have in our marriage. Are we going to believe? And are we going to agree on every little thing? These are non-essentials that we have in our life? No. No, we're going to have disagreements. We're going to have areas in our life that, that they see a little bit different, you know? Like the Eggridges used to say, that men tend to think in blue and women tend to think in pink. Is that wrong? No, it's just different. Men have sometimes a meshing of sometimes. I know I do. I love a good chip flick. I love a good romance. I love certain things about my wife. So I tend to go sometimes over a little bit of the pink part. But I'm still blue. I'm still a man. But men will call to love our wives as Christ loved the church. So whether we have fundamentals, we have unity in our agreement in our marriage, I'm not going anywhere. My eyes aren't going anywhere. My thoughts aren't going anywhere. This is where I reside with you. That's a unity and fundamentalism. But our, our non-essentials, what we might disagree on and so forth, we have liberty to do that. Husbands, do you allow your wives to be different? Do you allow them to have a little bit different view than you? Do you compliment them? 
Do they have things that, that could add? Wow, I never thought about that before. Do you value your, their opinion? Liberty. But in everything, unity. In everything, love. Whether it's the fundamentals or the, or the allowing of the freedom to express ourselves. So Peter's looking at here in the church. Tender-hearted. Love is brothers. Tender-hearted. I want to be kind. The Bible says that a man's kindness is what defines a man. That's what really is at the bottom of, of, of truly what a man is. We've lost our way here, you know? Character is not defined by being a man, you know? Character is defined by love. Character is not weak. Character is strong. We, talk, we tend to, to, in society and in marriages here too, <coughs> define strength with muscle. Strength with brawn. I'm going to beat that wife in submission. Just, you know. <laughs> no, I'm going to rule her to Christ with my character. I'm strong. Because I know I'm weak, and when I'm weak, he is strong. So he's in verse 9, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Jesus said something that, that shocked his hearers on the, on the uh, quote-unquote Sermon on the Mount. It's in chapter 5 of Matthew. He says, But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. I tell you, my friends, it's impossible on your own. Want to have a godly marriage? Learn that. It's impossible on your own. And reviling. This is reviling. Don't return evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Back in chapter 2, verse 23, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. When he was on the cross, he suffered for us, leaving his example. Look at verse, uh, look at the 23rd verse of the second chapter, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But what? He committed himself to him who judges righteously. Maybe some of your marriages aren't going good because you never really committed it to Christ. Maybe you're trying to be a, maybe you're trying it on your own. We were called to inherit a blessing, so we should be a blessing. That shows man's greatest uh, selfishness. Is when he expects something from the Lord, and yet he does nothing but wrongdoing and ill to his mate or those around him. Think about that. I'm treating my, my whoever bad, and yet I, I expect to be blessed of God. I expect a blessing on, on Lord. I want to be a blessing. I can't be a blessing out there or in here unless I'm a blessing at home. I cannot do it. Hypocrisy will eat you like a cancer. And you will fall off like most people do. You know they, they you know the average length of a Bible home Bible study? Anybody know? 
three to four months. How they get that, I don't know. What I've known, for example, is true. Anybody know the average of a, of a marriage today? Two to five years. Two to five years. So we are called inherent blessing. We should be one. He said, verse 10, who would love days, or excuse me, love life and see good days. Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. We are the righteous. And his ear is open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Listen to this. We all know these things in Romans, in the first part of Romans. If if we've ever read Romans at all, we know this. God gave them over to vileness because they worshipped the creature rather than the the, uh, creator. God gave them over to vile passions because they exchanged that which is natural in the woman for that's what's against nature. God gave them over to the vileness of mind for men were with men, you know, doing indecent acts. The Bible says this about the natural man, the one that's devoid of Christ. Paul says that we previously charged that both Jews and Gentiles, they're all under sin. For it is written, there's none. There's not some. That, that, that word none means zero. There is zero that is righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. And here's the one that got me because I was growing up with wanting to be a goody two-shoes. There is none who does good. No, not one. So I'm telling you, when we are born again, we should be different. We should have marriages that reflect that. Either spouse should be growing and flourishing in their marriage. If you're not growing and flourishing in your marriage, something is wrong. I think there are so many self-help books out there about relationships And it's only natural that God would want a relationship with you. He's a relationship God. The first relationship was in the garden when he put man and woman together. God wants to have a relationship. God is a triune God. The Godhead had a relationship. We don't understand that. That's a mystery. The Father loves the Son. The Spirit is in communion with the Father and the Son, yet they are the one God. I don't understand that. But it's relationship. Verse 13 comes out of, back into another area here, of changed life, which the Gospel produces. And who is he? 
who will harm you if you become followers of what is good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Wait a minute. What is it? What's that? God allows us to go through suffering so that He might bless us. That's incredible. The world says exactly the opposite. What did I do to deserve this? I must have done something wrong. You are blessed. Don't be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. They're not the ones you're going to answer to. They're not the ones that bless you. They're not the ones that give you your next breath. They're not the ones that give you every day affords an opportunity for you to be a blessing for somebody else. Every day. You're not exempt. Nobody's exempt. I'm not exempt. Nobody's exempt. Every single day, every day that we live, affords an opportunity to be a blessing to somebody else. Every day. And the man or the woman that says that's not true does not know the scripture. Every day. If we don't see anybody but our spouse, we have our spouse to bless. If we see other people, we are a blessing and should be a blessing every day. How is that possible? Look at verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now, that's a continuation to, to verse 16, but we will we'll first I want to address a couple of things. We must first sanctify him. This verse does us no good. We cannot happily give a defense of the hope that lies within us unless we sanctify him first. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that my Lord Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. I know that he died for my sin. I know that he can offer you eternal life. I know that he can offer you forgiveness. And I know that life only starts when we meet our creator through a relationship to Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes unto the Father but through me. I know this, I'm confident, because I have sanctified Christ in my life. He is not a part of my life. He is my life. We need to correct anybody that says, Oh, God's important to me. He's, he's, he's a part of my life. <laughs> That's not what the scripture says. We have died with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. If then, Paul says in Colossians 3, If then you've been risen with Christ, Seek those things above, where Christ is seated right now, God. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. See, we need to sanctify Him. This verse is an issuance that must go in the sequence it is written. We must sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. Have you done that? Have you sanctified Him, which means set apart have you considered Christ as Lord? And by that very word, Lord, He is your all and all. 
He has authority over your life, complete authority over your life. You have no authority. Are you willing to go there? Jesus will not rule anybody that fails to recognize him with his rightful due. Now, I'm not saying that people that have lost their way, after they violently have given their life to Christ, what I am saying is that we are to, in our will, in our drive, sanctified, set apart the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord in our life. He is the supreme authority. Have we done that? Have you done that? Because Jesus said that no man putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Harsh words. Christ is Lord. And he, as he was Lord to his creation, as he was Lord to the people he governed throughout all the dispensations, as he was Lord over the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, as he's Lord over life, as he's Lord over death, and he raised himself from the dead. No man takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own instead, and I take it up again, Jesus said. He is Lord. He is Lord of your life. If you've been holding back, you're committing treason, and you're grieving him, and you're causing you distress. You show me a man or woman who's committed and sanctified the Lord Jesus Christ in their heart, and I will show you a solid man or woman. But show me a man or woman that tries to live two lifestyles. Ah, God's good, you know. He's really, he's really important in my life. I go to church uh, once or twice a month, maybe, or whatever the case may be, and I'll show you a man that's frustrated. I'll show you a man or woman that has no power to sanctify the Lord God in their hearts, that has no power. When, a, when somebody comes to your door and asks you, what is, it, what is this that I see in your life? Think about this. If Paul and Silas had not sanctified the Lord God in their heart, what would they have said to the Philippian jailer in, in Acts 16? Gentlemen, what must I do to be saved? Only confidence and only somebody who has sanctified the Lord Jesus Christ with power can say, I'll tell you how you can be saved. There is one who came and lived a life for you. His name is Jesus Christ. That he went about doing good and doing things only God can do and showing signs and wonders and fulfilling the word of God. Fulfilling over 158 specific prophecies of his birth alone. One who fulfilled everything and all the types. One who claimed to be God. One who claimed to... He is the one who said, I'm going to rise from the dead. He's the one that claimed that there's no forgiveness apart from Him. He's the one that claims He is the Lord of heaven. And He's the one that's claimed that He's coming back. And that He loves you. And that He died for the sins of the world. That He died for your sins. And that if you place your trust in Him, whether you die today or you die 50 years from now, you will be with Him because your sins are forgiven. That Christ suffered on the cross and cried out in prophetic fulfillment, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because at that moment, Christ took your sin upon Himself. Because the Father loves you. 
And by turning to Christ, I receive eternal life. He clothes me with the robe of His righteousness. And we say that with authority? Because that's the hope that people are going to ask. That's the understanding that people are going to ask. In a day of irrelevance out here, in a day of, of, of all kinds of religious philosophies, people want to know the truth. One of the things I've told my kids, you can do a lot of things in life, you better not lie to me. I don't have a philosophy to offer. I have truth. I don't have many ways to get to heaven. I have the way to get to heaven. Jesus Christ is the only way that man is going to get to heaven. Christ is the only hope for humanity. Christ is the only hope for this world. And when people reject Christ, they reject God's free offer of forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Am I solidified in that? Yes, I am. You know why? Because I've replaced myself on the throne with Christ on the throne. I've replaced the authority over my life with His authority over my life. Complete authority. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Some of you need to do that. And always be ready to give an answer. To anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Let me tell you, God's not going to work on your timetable. Well, I know Jeff doesn't feel good today, so I'm not going to bring anybody his way. I'm going to wait until he is just right, feels good, and has everything, you know, and then I'll, you know. No! God says to be ready in and out of season to people that preach the Word of God. Do you know that? Well, let me study for that sermon for three or four weeks. And no, he said, study is good. Don't get me wrong. But we are to always be ready. We are to be able to preach the word in and out of season, Paul tells Timothy. We are to study and show ourselves proved as a workman that does not need to be ashamed. We're supposed to be uh, abiding and willing and, and receiving and, and waiting in expectation that Christ can come back so we wouldn't be ashamed at his coming. We're to sanctify him as the Lord God in our hearts. And then we will be ready to give a defense. Have you ever had that opportunity and you felt like you failed and you just couldn't say things right and you just, oh gosh, I wish I would have done That won't happen when you sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. He is it. If somebody asks you for a reason of the hope that either lies within you or is there hope in this world? Yes, there's hope in this world. Let me tell you about him. I know him more than I know that I have a next breath. He lives, and because he lives, I live also. Because he's in heaven, I will be in heaven. Because he took my sin upon him and cried out, My God, my God, why is he forsaken? You know why he forsook, that God forsook him on the cross? Because of me. I know I'm forgiven. My Lord raised from the dead, and he lives within me. If Christ didn't raise from the dead, how does he live in me then? I have no explanation for that. It's not a placebo. It's not a fad. 
I've been feeling this way for 30 plus years. Christ lives in my life. He lives in the innermost part of my being where only him and I have that communion. Do you know that? That is personal. And now that I have communion with Christ and I sanctify him as Lord in my life, I'm ready. Friends, I'm ready to give a defense. I have no problem if somebody came to me asking me about anything about Christ or God. I know exactly what to tell them. Tell them what I've experienced. I've experienced Christ. I know him. He's alive. If somebody came to me and said, hey, why don't you, why don't you tell, me, tell me about Don? Well, I really don't know him that well. I know him. So I can tell about him. I know Christ. I sanctify him as Lord. And part of knowing Christ is part knowing that he is Lord, Master, he's King, he's it. So don't say you know Jesus and go year after year after year and just have him as a byproduct. Don't say you know Jesus and go year after year and say he's a good part of my life, but you know, he's I, I have that life. I got it. Okay? By proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ, what you are saying is that he is Lord of my life and master. And that's what it means to sanctify, set apart Christ as Lord in our life. Then we will be adequately ready because it's not us. Remember what Jesus said? Don't worry at that time on what to say. It'll be the spirit of your father that will give you what to say. We sanctify Christ. We're filled with the, with the spirit of Christ. Because Paul already says we have the mind of Christ. And we do it with meekness and fear. We fear God because he's the king. You know this world is going to literally melt in fear when, when they see Christ coming back and judging the world. And we will be there right with him. Do you know him? Do you know him? Do you recognize his voice? He says in verse 16, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. You know about the, uh, there's a great uh, couple verses in, in Proverbs 22 about the sanctifying the Lord God in your heart, always telling you. He sums up the Proverbs this way. He says, so that your trust may be in the Lord. He says, I have instructed you today, even you, have I not written you excellent things of counsels and knowledge, that I may make you know the certainty of the words of truth, that you may answer words of truth with those who send you. We are ambassadors for Christ. You know, someone has said we fear God so little because we fear man so much. We fear about what man's going to say, what they're going to do. If we say something, we might something might happen. Wow. So he says that having a good conscience, verse 16. A 
good conscience, a clear conscience. They defame you as evildoers. They revile your good conscience in Christ. They're going to be ashamed. They're going to realize that Christ was true after all. That Christ is worthy after all. He says, verse 17, For it is better if the will, it is the will of God to suffer for doing good rather than doing evil. Even our, even of our suffering, God is glorified. That's the part that hurts. That's the tough part in sanctifying the Lord Christ in your heart. Is that God may call you to suffer for a while. But as we'll see, when we get to chapter 5, God has a reason for that. Because in chapter 5, verse 10, it says, But may the God of grace, who called us to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, he will perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory. It is always to the glory of God. It's always for our good and his glory. We should know that by now. There's reasons for this. The man or woman who is solid in the Word of God is a solid man or woman. <laughs> That's just the way it is. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but being alive by the Spirit. Christ did not come to give us an example, other than a good life follows example. Yes, Christ came for one reason, one reason only. To die for the sins of the world, to for the just to die on the cross. Why are you reviling him? One of the thieves says, he's done nothing wrong. The just for the unjust. Let me put it to you a little bit more home. Jesus Christ came for Jeff Graham, the unjust, that he might bring me to God. And that's all your plight. That's what happened. No wonder Paul can write in Ephesians 3, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. He's made alive by the Spirit. It simply means his resurrection is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ was raised a spiritual body. Wait a minute. Joe's witnesses say that he was raised as a spirit. I'm not talking about that. He was raised in this spiritual body. His body fit for heaven. His body fit for glory. Go to 1 Corinthians real quick, if you will. 1 Corinthians 15. We've talked about this stuff all day long. This is just fantastic. 1 Corinthians 15. Let's look at verse 44. We could go a lot back further, but actually when you start at verse 35, it's about the resurrection body, but we'll look at verse 44 just for the sake of time. It is so unnatural body, 
It has raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. Okay, now, when we talk about things such as this, we must realize that when the Bible talks about a spiritual body, it is talking about a body that is fit for heaven, a body that is not natural. This is a natural body. I'm fit for the earth. I breathe the air. I, I have parameters. I bleed. I, I have uh, so many days and I die. I could go on and on. But we're talking about a spiritual body here. Not God was raised a spirit. Jesus wasn't raised a spirit. Jesus was raised in a spiritual body. Luke 24, uh, I think it's 39. Let me tell you the difference real quick. Remember, at, after he had gone past the, the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, now he's, now he's coming in the room. The, upper, the, the disciples were in the upper room. He says this, listen, Behold my hands and my feet, that is, I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. See, we have to understand, raise a spiritual body does not mean a ghost, does not mean a, ooh, a spirit. It, a spiritual body is the body that's fit for the heavenlies. It's fit for heaven. Notice that Jesus, by the way, this is Luke chapter 24, verse 39, but notice how Jesus didn't say, a spirit does not have flesh, bone, and blood, as you see that I have. But he says, a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And he showed him his hands and his side. So he was suffered for sins back in First Peter. The just for the unjust that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. He's alive by the Spirit. Do you know that we are going to have bodies that will be fit for heaven? It's called the first resurrection. That will happen at the rapture of the church when Jesus comes back. All those that are dead, their bodies will be instantaneously uh, raised and will meet their spirit and their, their soul and will be united. So Paul calls in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 23, the redemption of our body. Those that are here and alive when Christ comes back, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that will, in a moment, a twinkle of an eye, we shall all be changed. That's the first resurrection of the saints. So what the Paul says, whether we live or die, we're the Lord's. What kind of body will we have? He was made alive by the Spirit. Now I want to end in with this next section just for a few minutes. It's, it's caused a lot of, I, I love it. I have spent many, many, many days looking into the fact that verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered again once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. He was made alive by the Spirit. He was put to death in the flesh. They nailed him. They killed him. 
They drove spikes in his hands and, and probably through his ankles. It doesn't matter. They drew spikes through his body. They whipped him. They beat him. They spit upon him. They made him unrecognizable. They used him as sport for violence. And we could go on and on. We all know that he was he died in the flesh. But he was made alive by the Spirit. He rose from the dead and the same body was crucified. But what happened? What's the difference now? Now, he as, as for us, as the, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, as the first Adam died, he is called the second Adam. We will live forever. And in the body like unto his, the scripture says. He was raised in power. He was raised in authority. That excites me. Don't worry. You that don't like your bodies now, it's not going to be very long where you're not ever going to complain like that again, ever. You will be so amazed at the creation of the body God has given you, I think, that for all eternity we're going to marvel. They marvel at His. They were on the upper room behind a locked door. He came in. He ate broiled fish before them. How could that be? (laughs) We're going to have that. There's going to be no more diets. There's going to be no more. I just don't look good. You know, I did. I did a. I heard back in the '80s uh, there was a clinical study done by the harm of Barbie dolls on young girls because Barbies were perfect. You know, perfect proportion, no blemishes, no nothing. <laughs> I mean, appearance, appearance. What are we doing? What? what how are we going to be raised? That's part of our wonderment. We're never going to die again. We're never going to die again. We're never going to have decaying bodies. We're never going to lose our mind. We're never going to get sick. We're never going to sorrow. We're going to be able to to see God's kingdom. We're going to be able to go from one end of God's kingdom to the other. We're going to be interacting with, with Christ himself. We can't see the glory of the risen Christ in, in, in bodies. We can't be before God in the bodies we have now. We disintegrate. They're not fit for heaven. They're not fit for His glory. So what's this going to be? And how does this tie into our, to our passage here? Because we know this. Now, He is the Lord. He's the Lord of life. He's the Lord of creation. He not only fashioned you in your mother's womb, now for your earthly life, as He spoke and the universe came into existence, that's what He's going to do for your spiritual body. He's going to speak with a shout of command and a twinkle of an eye. You're going, to be, you're going to be changed. You're going to have a glorious body like unto His. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give an answer. Hope? Oh yeah. Baby, I got hope. Because I know whom I believe, Paul says. He was on his way to Rome. He told Timothy, he says, I know whom I have believed, and I am confident because I've committed unto him against that day. He believed, he was confident, he's committed, he knew. And what did he commit? He committed himself. Christ is Lord. He sanctified him in his heart. But he was made alive by the Spirit. Look at verse 19. By whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison. I'm gonna. I'm, I'm just going to slightly touch on this. We'll start on it next week. But, who formerly were disobedient when once 
The divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. To the spirits now in prison. You know, in about in roughly in the Bible, there's 385 times uh, in this in the scriptures with this occurring spirits. But you know, man is never called a spirit. Angels are called spirits, and we'll look at this both ways. So don't 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 go. Oh, you're heretic. Angels are called spirits in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 7 and 14. But look briefly at 2 Peter chapter 2. Just go over there real quick. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Remember our, our passage. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of everlasting darkness or chains of darkness, preserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight persons, a preacher of righteousness, bringing the flood in the world the ungodly, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and so forth. He knows how to deliver the righteous. Let me bring your attention, you don't have to turn there, but let me what Jude says. You haven't been a Jew for a while, I would admonish you to look at it. In Jude, verses 6 and 7, he says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Again, he says, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the city around them, in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality, and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So let's wrap this up briefly, and we'll hit on it next week, and I'll end here. I have three things. Briefly, number one, there's no second chance. This is not the fact that Jesus went down and preached a second opportunity to those that were in hell. There is no chance. The Bible says nothing about a second chance beyond the death of this body. But Hebrews chapter 9 says it is appointed for men once to die, but after this to judgment. We also take that and look at the great gold fix in, in Luke 16, where you have the guy, the rich man that died in Lazarus. He said that there's a gold fixed. You cannot come over to here, or we cannot go over to there. It is a possibility. Scripture does not teach a second chance after the death of the body. That's why the predominant uh, trumpet, if you will, of evangelism is today is the day. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Come to him now while there's an opportunity. That's always been the evangelist's cry in the Scripture. Number two, he went and shouted victory over death. Number three, he preached through Noah, those people who knew who are now in Hades and they're awaiting judgment. C.I. Schofield says that the saving power of God was preached by Christ through the Spirit in Noah. Jesus Christ went down and he was proclaiming victory to those that were in the lower parts of the earth, those that were in that part of Hades that we see 
Hades and, the, and Abraham's bosom. That's why the scripture says that when he ascended, he led captive captivity. Jesus went down and proclaimed victory to those spirits that were now imprisoned. Can you imagine waiting for the Messiah all through the Old Testament, fulfilling types and going through the tabernacle and, and all this. And can you imagine Christ coming down and proclaiming victory and taking them to heaven? It, that is an amazing... Jesus said this, listen to this. In Revelation 118, he said, I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. I have the keys of Hades, hell, and of death. I have the keys. He was victorious. Just like that song that Greg was singing. You know, about Christ rose from the dead. Victory was your sting. It's no more. He's the victor. And he went down and as he was releasing, he proclaimed his victory. He went and he preached the spirits in prison. What did he preach? And also in the days of Noah, we see through different passages like when we saw in Second Corinthians or Second uh, Peter and then the one in Jude. Look at verse twenty: a formula of disobedient when once a divine long suffering waited in the days of Noah over a hundred years while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. We'll get in tomorrow, or excuse me, next week, a little bit more in this passage, but then we'll go on to about what really does it mean? What does baptism symbolize? How does it mean? It means to change life. Wow. And all this because Christ rose from the dead. How do I know that God is satisfied? How do I know that my sins are forgiven? You know, there's a lot of Christians that have gone years and years grappling with that. How do I know? How do I know after all, it happened 2,000 years ago. How do I know? The Bible tells you how you can know. Because Jesus rose from the dead. God raised him up. That's what that, that theological term propitiation is all about. Christ was the satisfying sacrifice on our behalf. It's the only one that the Father will accept. You will not get into heaven apart from Christ. The only way we get into heaven is Christ dying in our stead and being buried and three days later rising from the dead. As the scripture said, God raised him from the dead, proving that, that 
Christ is God, proving that Christ was the only satisfying sacrifice for my sin. I can do good works all I want, all my life. That's going to do me nothing. The only way I'm going to see God and the only way I'm going to be in heaven is because Christ died for my sin. And I placed my trust in him. And three days later, God raised him from the dead. That's proof that my sins are gone because I believe in the sacrifice God laid down for me. And that's Christ on the cross, buried and risen on my behalf. Father, I thank you, Lord, for for showing what it means to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts, to always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks for the hope that lies within us with meekness, fear, with reverence. I thank you for this morning. I ask that you would just bless us today with yourself. And Lord, if there's any one of those hearing this message, that they need and realize they need forgiveness of sins, that they're a sinner, that they would come to Christ, that they would turn from their sin and turn to Christ. That they would receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life in Christ. And I pray that they would do that now. And I ask, Lord, that you would search the hearts of those who have been flirting with you, that have been living a double life, trying to live with you and trying to live in the world, trying to satisfy their own lives and make meaning of their own lives apart from you, which can't be done. But I pray that they would realize their sin, they would stop and they would turn to you and commit it all to you and give you your rightful due. I thank you that you could and will give them restlessness, as Dr. Barn asked you to say, until they rest in nothing but you. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Give me a little kiss and go back to bed. So I could see little Samuel running to Eli. Eli's like, no, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. Does that three times. Finally, the third time, Eli goes, wait a minute. I think something's going on here. The Lord's speaking to you. The next time he does that, yes, Lord, here I am. The whole context, remember when we were in there, what that really means is when you're hearing with an expectant, obedient ear, yes, Lord, here I am. That's the spirit of the prophets. That's what they're saying to the remnant. And we see every time that the remnant is talked about here, they are obedient to Christ. They are not back like the ones uh, in in verse 2. Remember, the time has not come that the time of the house of the Lord should be built. Ah, you know, it's just not that big a deal to us. Oh, yeah, I know that the Lord freed us from captivity. I know that he paved the way. And whatever the, their excuse might be, God's not in excuses. There's no passage in Scripture that says, you know what, I'll give you one excuse today. God does not deal in excuses. He deals in love and His remnant.
And I want to end tonight by reading a passage of Scripture that we will be getting into. I believe very highly in this. It's in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. Remember this. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And that's what amazing thing is about the gospel, is it, make, it opens the door and implants new life, the life of God. He is eagerly concerned for his remnant, for his true bride. And as we'll see as we go through Haggai, we get into Zechariah, and especially at the end of Zechariah, we're going to see that the remnant of Israel uh, is going to be miraculously delivered, brought under, under the rod of cleansing, chastisement of the Lord, and brought into his kingdom. And I don't think mere words can say uh, what that's going to be like. But I can tell you one thing. Read, because we're going to go through it many times. Read uh, Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 11 all the way through that chapter. And if you can read that without being stirred, well, I don't think you can. Father, I thank you for this evening. I thank you for the time we have in your word. What a wonderful time it is. And I ask that you would just give us the joy of the Lord. Your word is joyous. It became to me, as Jeremiah said, the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. I ate it up. Job said it was more than my necessary food. You, Lord Jesus, said that you are true food and true drink, that when we come to you and abide in you, we will never hunger, we will never thirst. Cause our dull hearts to get the correlation here, to understand that you're speaking to us because you love us. You want to give us life, abundant life, that we may live the life that we have. We possess eternal life now. We are just waiting for our Lord to come back and, 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 and get us, receive us unto himself. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my heart and my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Yet I go away and prepare a place for you. And if I go away, I will come back and receive you unto myself. And that where I am, there you will be also. Paul says that same thing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 16 through 18. And he said, ended that and said, comfort one another with these words. Father, I pray that you would stir our hearts to rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name, I pray. Amen. I wanted to get divorced, but she felt she couldn't get a divorce because I'm Catholic. Is that a godly marriage? I know people that won't get divorced and they want to get divorced because they but they want to stay together and they do one another because of property reasons. Is that a godly marriage? These people claim no God? Husbands, let's let's commit even today of showing our wives.
the love of Jesus Christ. And Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for the word that uh, we don't need to be afraid of We don't need to be afraid of falling short in our position as a husband and wife. What we need to do is to heed the word of God and correct through the power of the Spirit our position as a husband or a wife. Because this is godly living. This is what Peter is putting down. And I thank you, Lord, that this epistle, starting out with the gospel of Jesus Christ, how you elected us, made us your own, in that... You bore our sins on your body on the tree, that we may live to righteousness and die to sins. By stripes we are healed, that our godliness and our hope will be surrounded by completely hoping to the end these things in our life. And all of our hope centers in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I love when you say, Lord Jesus, to us that you didn't leave us alone. If I go away, I will not leave you alone or as orphans. I will come to you. And as I live, you will live also. Those are powerful, life-changing words. Father, I thank you for the marriages here. Whether they're absolutely strong or whether they're struggling, there is an opportunity that we can be strengthened thereby. That Christ not only be lived out on the streets where our closest mate or closest people maybe can't see, but our life can be lived in the home where they can see. We're all to see. I thank you for your life-changing truth. I thank you for the wonderfulness of your indescribable gift in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name I ask it, Lord. Amen.